Hello everyone, welcome to Green.io, the podcast for doers, making our digital world greener, one bite at a time. I'm your host, Gael Duez, and I invite you to meet with me a wide range of guests working in the digital tech industry to better understand and make sense of its sustainability issues and find inspiration together for the next moves to green the IT we use or the digital products we build. If you like the podcast, please rate it five stars on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite platform to spread the word to more responsible technologists like you. And now, enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome back, I would say, to this fourth episode of Green IO, part number two. I still have the chance to be with uh, Chris Adams. We decided to split the episode because we had so many interesting topics to discuss that we wanted not to make any compromise. So last time I checked, Chris is still the executive director of the Green Web Foundation. And if you want to know everything about him, just listen to the first uh, part of this episode. And uh, now I'd like to welcome Chris again for this second part. Hi, Chris. Hi, Gail. How are you, t- how are you today? Ah, wonderful, wonderful. I'm back in La Réunion. So if you hear some birds singing in the background, that's perfectly okay. Biodiversity is still up here. So ah, pretty cool. Well, if you hear a garbage <laughs> truck going past our flat, then um, yeah, that's uh, not quite as pretty, but um, there will be a little bit of noise, I think. But I'll do my best to try and catch it and close the windows if I do hear them coming okay oh that's okay I've been there one week ago <laughs> so I know exactly where you are and it's still yeah. a lovely neighborhood in Berlin so I really enjoy it. thanks for having me there and welcoming and thanks for the barbecue as well you're welcome so beyond green hosting I know that sustainable design is also keen to your heart you've signed the sustainable web manifesto and in a cat talk you spoke about having a gold approach, gold standing for G-O-L-D. Could you elaborate a bit? So gold, the reason I kind of like shared gold, as it were, was largely because I was inspired by the successes people have had in the accessibility world. And uh, in the accessibility world, there is a mnemonic, a kind of like acronym, which is POR, which I believe that stands for perceivable, operable, understandable, and robust. And uh, I'll just run through these and then kind of speak about gold. So perceivable was this idea that if you build a digital service, you want it to be perceivable using more than one sense. So if someone is blind, it, it can still be perceived in another way. So maybe there's a screen reader which can read something out to someone. So that means there's uh, you're, you're thinking about perception in multiple ways. Operable is the idea that, yeah, you might assume a mouse, but if someone doesn't have, say, motor control, or maybe they're holding something at the time, or they've recently injured themselves, like maybe you've broken your wrist and you, and you have to use your other wrist, there's like an idea of operability making it easy to work there. And then understandable is pretty clear. If you, if you can't understand an interface, then you can't really use the interface. And then robust is this idea of making a interface which basically degrades somewhat gracefully and uh, might work in, say, low bandwidth connections or might work in less than ideal connections. This was actually to be really, really useful. And these principles were basically the underlying basis for what people end up using when they basically grade websites for their accessibility. And because they can be graded, you ended up seeing groups like, say, the public sector uh, mandate this in their contracts. And you've seen people start to encode this in uh, scenarios where it's part of how they purchase things, for example, or even in cases where where people are shut out from using services. They've been able to successfully sue companies to say, it's unfair that you're doing this. Uh, this is wrong. And uh, we can point to examples of, say, like Domino's Pizza, 
where people were basically, where Domino's Pizza's website was sued because blind people were not able to access uh, the service and order their food, right? So we figured we need something like that for digital sustainability. And you need something which is kind of memorable. And the whole idea of poor was actually kind of handy for people because it was something you could ask for developers and it was easy to present in a, de- in a deck. So I came up with gold largely to kind of capture some of these ideas. So gold stands for green, green energy, green inputs, open as an open source and open data and open culture. So you can actually see where the improvements are possible. Lean in terms of not using more than you need to and distributed in terms of, well, there's got to be multiple ways of accessing a particular service and and ideally from more than one provider as well. So that was kind of gold because I figured that it's a memorable thing that you can use and it allows you to think about a digital service. Like, am I running on green inputs, for example? Like, are the inputs as green as possible? Um, Open is like, which parts are open that I can can I that I can like look into or I can see or I can actually see where there is scope for improvement and likewise as lean and distributed in the same way like am I relying entirely on one provider who might be doing things which I disagree with or my organization which might not align with my organization's values so that was kind of the way that why I was actually sharing this large is a way to kind of see if it might work or if it's a way that so you see what sticks and see if anyone picks up on it really I do hope it will. So, Chris, we decided to focus almost another full episode on what is going on in the digital sustainability field. You are one of the older experts in digital sustainability, so I would love to get your insights about web sustainability in general, its evolution. What are the main trends you've noticed since two years? What should we expect in the forthcoming news? Okay. All right. So first of all, um, this is kind of amusing. I, I I was forty this year, and I'm one of the older people in this in this society. That's that tells that tells everything <laughs> about like the tech industry and how it has this strange bias towards like you know like dudes in dudes in their twenties essentially, right? So uh, yeah, there is um I I have been uh involved in this for a while basically and uh, i think since graduating i've been kind of drawn to this the thing uh, your question about are there any trends that you've seen i think there is and i think even this term digital sustainability wasn't really a term that people were using that much uh, until maybe two or three years ago uh, at the absolute earliest um, you now are seeing a lot more interest from organizations who have basically figured out yes well i guess the power has to come from somewhere and there is a person who I have a lot of respect for. His name is Cade DM at the New Design Congress. He speaks about sustainability. He speaks about technology. He basically says technology is a environmental, social, and political accelerant. And I think this is actually really interesting to be aware of in this kind of context because I think the one of the trends you see is people looking at the environmental impact of ICT or IT, but not necessarily being that confident talking about what you use it for. And uh, most of the digital sustainability stuff is almost entirely inwardly focusing. So we might talk about Okay, let's take, let's talk about like making AI really, really efficient, right? And let's take the example of, I know we're going to use AI to drill for oil and gas, all right? So we'll talk about, isn't it great that we can make a really, really efficient model for drilling for oil and gas? Or let's, isn't it great that we can use renewable energy for drilling for oil and gas? Without really talking about, are we sure that drilling for oil and gas is consistent with whatever kind of values we're trying to actually incorporate into our work in the first place? Now, that part there, 
a lot of technologists are generally seen that as outside of their pay grade or uh, or be beyond their beyond what what's in their kind of sphere of influence and i think this is the thing that you are starting to see a little bit more of right now but hasn't really been addressed so much and the reason i've referred to this is the science is really really clear on this and when we did some research into this uh, we basically found that if you look at the kind of deals that are announced by some very very large organizations if they're going to if they're going to do a deal with a big oil company to help accelerate this stuff just the carbon emitted from that alone is like the same carbon as facebook in a single given year right and that's a lot of servers so i think it's important that we we are able to move away from just looking at the inside stuff and looking at okay what do we use it for when you know talk about like not just innovation but decisions basically but to go back to the original question yes there is absolutely an uptick in people being interested in digital sustainability and you can see this from the big cloud providers having these tools but you can also see it from this kind of explosion of companies now offering digital sustainability or some kind of transformation where before they would only really talk about say digital transformation without thinking about this kind of aspect of it so you've got a point chris about it because it seems that for a lot of technologists they enjoy some kind of neutral position do you believe in this position like this neutrality position i i don't i think it's a really i, I think it's very convenient to not talk about any of this and because it means that basically you get to open up to more customers theoretically right but i think that if you're interested in this you, it's worth asking yourself well why am i interested in this whole idea of digital sustain sustainability in the first place and why am i putting these kind of specific and artificial limits on how i think about this stuff uh because i think that given the state that things are in we can't not talk about this and just assume that it's totally okay and uh, i there and, and i think in in many cases you basically do see it because a lot of the time it's pretty good for business to be able to sell something like digital sustainability you can make really good arguments about how you're saving money you could talk about how you're saving carbon you can talk about how by using green energy you're saving lives because there's like 9 million people whose lives are ended early each year from just like the particulate and all the kind of poor air quality from fossil fuels you can and or even you can say well it's great for say retention with your staff you can make these arguments at the same time of not really touching on what you're choosing to enable with this and uh, a lot of the time it's because right now uh, if you're going to kind of say hey i don't think we should be doing this a lot of the time we don't really have any kind of really common or well used ways to really have these discussions in a way which some people might see as kind of career limiting and i think this is actually one thing this is probably the next part of this and the organizations are able to start interrogating and engaging with this subject i think they're going to have a do better by actually actually having some of the kind of brightest and best people who are really really quite informed about this whole field they're probably going to be attracting those kinds of people but you do have this kind of inertia right now or people saying well you cannot move too quickly on this because we're all we're set up one way and uh it's okay for us to talk about this as long as we save money but the thing is if you look at the numbers the numbers actually don't even there is a bigger prize by moving away from things like say for, uh, like a fossil based society if you look at say the IEA uh, which is the international energy agency these folks talk about okay well what would we need to have a transition in line with the science and they say well 
over the next, say, between now and, say, 2030, you're probably going to need something like $300 billion of continued investment in the existing oil and gas fields that you do have just to maintain some kind of production or to manage that decline carefully. Because over time, all these kind of res all these reserves will decline because you're you're getting stuff out of there, right? But they say, well, there's maybe three it's three hundred billion per year between now and twenty thirty. Then they said, but if we're going to sh shift away from this fossil based society, then you're looking at something like three or four trillion investment each year between now and twenty uh, and now and and, and, and twenty thirty. And that's such a bigger price to go for. And I feel like if you're going to make if you're going to look at this stuff. Take a slightly larger view and realize that there is this massive opportunity that you're in many ways closing off if you just focus on this kind of local optimization of just helping oil and gas rather than help a more advanced, humane form of power for this stuff. Does it include the fossil bombs recently mentioned by The Guardian? Because that was very scary. Uh, so this is the thing that's actually worth being aware of. So there's basically continued investment in, what you, in the existing reserves that we have. And I... This is not my opinion. This is the opinion of basically the energy industry who have said, well, if we, if we want to stay within the science, then we cannot open any more or do any new exploration. The only thing we can do is keep the existing ones. But the thing is, they will deplete over time. So if you want to just maintain same level of production for this, then you will need to continually invest because it's going to get harder each year to get that basically to get those um, hydrocarbons out of those depleting reserves. That's a very good point. What about I'm a CTO, I'm a CPO, I'm even a CEO facing the board and wanting to drop part of my today's business to make the case for tomorrow's business, which should be a low carbon business and hopefully a fossil fuel free business. What can I do? And what can I expect from outside help, I would say? Do you believe that we need to wait for some kind of regulation, carbon price, or is it still pretty easy to make a case without waiting for external pressure? I think it depends where in the world you are, basically. So in, say, America, you now have things like um, basically coming into law, a requirement to basically disclose the climate risk uh, in, in your organization if you're above a certain size. And that means that people who are investors in your company will want to know this and they will be asking you for this kind of disclosure. And if you don't have this information, it's going to be harder for you to raise investment in future. You'll be closing doors and the cost of capital is going to be higher, which is going to make it harder for you in the long run. So you can actually make the argument and say, well, legally, we have to do this. We're not going to get the investors to get on board for this. So you can make an argument there quite well. And like this argument is what you see from companies like, um, oh, Persephone, for example, in America, they're doing that. In Europe, for example, where I am, it's slightly different. We don't have the same kind of regulatory drivers just yet, but we literally just yesterday or the day before, we have this basically war in, in, in the Ukraine, which is acting as in many ways as an accelerant for this kind of transition or saying, well, we can see like right there in front of us, Europe, for example, is spending it may be doing all these things from a humanitarian point of view, but if it's buying massive amounts of oil and gas, which is literally directly being used to finance a war machine, there's an argument there. The point I'm probably trying to get at here is that different parts of the world will have, will have different drivers. In, in Europe mm. right now, we've seen a massive package of investment that's come out, which kind of shows that there is a real direction of travel towards a much more kind of a much more low carbon society. So for context, I think the the amount of investment that was announced was something in the region of 290 billion in clean energy three th three years ago, which is basically, and they said, well, what we want to do is we want to 
double the amount of solar installed in Europe by 2025. So in two and a half years, the plan is to deploy three Germany's worth of new solar panels across Europe as a way to reduce dependency on fossil fuels, for example. So you can look to like trends like that and say, well, which of these trends do we want to ride? Do we want to ride the depleting one, which is going to make it harder for us to hire people or retain people and not, and uh, which is at best a shrinking market? Or do we want to go for this much, much larger market, which is going to give us much less volatility? It's, it's going to make it easier for us to attract people and we're also going to feel much better about what we're doing because there are all these other kind of benefits which might not be directly captured inside your organization but would be helpful for attracting people to your organization or anything like that and I actually feel like if one of the things you're struggling for is talent in this world then doing something to make it really really attractive for talent is probably a fairly compelling argument right now. Yeah Chris I'm surprised you didn't mention the recent W3C work group regarding sustainability. So I know that the web is only part of our digital tech world, but it's a big part and it's the most visible one. Do you believe part of the answer will come from us? Yeah. So I think that you, we, we've had previous examples of this. And I think the thing that we have found and we are seeing more signs of is people trying to find ways to kind of codify or figure out what to ask for or what to provide. Partly because if you're a CTO or a CPO or you manage projects, you need to have some things you can point to. Just like how in accessibility, you can point to like the WC8, the web content accessibility guidelines or the whole kind of poor thing, which is perceivable, operable, understandable and robust. These kind of criteria for describing the digital products. There is absolutely a push for that. And in Germany, for example, we see a real kind of interest in the Blau Engel certification, which is basically eco-certification for software, specifically so governments can say, we have our own targets that we need to meet. We need to incorporate this just the same way that we need to have accessible software because we need to solve, serve all the people in our country, for example. You do see things like that. And I think it's If it's not necessarily a regulation, you are seeing people kind of formalizing or kind of starting to agree on these kind of conventions. We don't really have ones which are that used right now, like Blau Engel only had their first piece of software this year, for example. And uh, there is only one other country in the world, Hong Kong, that has this kind of set of guidelines right now, or at least a certification. But France has its own kind of recommendations to follow. And this is stuff which is being built into procurement now. So basically how governments are going to be spending money for this. So you do see things like it, but the thing you generally see is right now, people don't quite know what numbers to optimize for. And a lot of the time they're reaching for what numbers are available, which results in people tracking things like say carbon first, because we've had 20 or 30 years of tracking carbon and there's a huge amount of science pointing to carbon, but that's not the only thing you would track, for example. So I think what you are seeing is organizations leading to this and with the W3C specifically, standards or conventions or things like that, which are designed at that point or that people agree on, there is actually a fast track to go from there through to creating an ISO standard, which would be available to everyone for free anyway. So it's likely that the changes or the things that get agreed by organizations like the W3C will end up being things which browsers might end up designing for uh, or people might be referring to just the way we've seen with accessibility. And that's very interesting because you mentioned ISO and the French branch of ISO, which is AFNOR, has released recently a norm, which is called uh, eco-perception yeah. of website. And that lead me to another question, which is, you've mentioned the blossoming of a lot of initiatives 
across the globe when it comes to digital sustainability. But today, there is not that much consensus around it. So do you think it's okay because it's a phase that is needed where people are creating the tools for tomorrow and you've got competing tools or complementary tools? Or do you think it will actually slow down the process? I think I'm... I actually don't know, to be honest. I mean, we did a report about this called The Fog of Enactment specifically because we feel, as in like the organization that I work for, our position is that we are in this stage that we've seen a hundred years ago with the energy market, because there's lots and lots of parallels here, that right now, uh, when you're in a kind of field which is relatively new, there's lots of innovation, it's also quite technical. There is this kind of phase before people arrive at having these kind of particular regulations or normative kind of forcing factors that we refer to as the fog of enactment. This is actually Professor Leah Stokes' term. The thing that you currently have is right now when people don't know what the implications of setting these different standards are or different ways to measure things, you end up with people kind of competing to kind of put forward their way of, say, tracking impact because it might favor the way that they've got things set up. So if you look at something like, say, cloud compute, right, something with like, say, serverless or object storage, something which gives you a very, very kind of granular way to track the carbon footprint of something like you're paying, you know, you can think about your CO2 emissions in terms of just the emissions from you running a particular function for 100 milliseconds without having to think about all the all the impact that's gone into building a gigantic data center, building all the HVAC to keep the computers from overheating, all this stuff here, then you're going to end up with a metric which really, really favors massively people who can invest tens of billions into massive data centers all around the world and can provide something like serverless. And that's probably not going to really incentivize or make, uh, that's not going to incentivize things like, say, embodied carbon or reuse of computers, for example. So if you had another set of people who had competing standards saying, well, actually, we think that the embodied carbon is much more important. And we think that the embodied carbon should include the actual data center as well, rather than just the energy, then you're going to end up with something which favors another group. And I think what we see right now is that there is going to be this kind of jockeying for with different groups trying to come up with a metric which tends to favor their existing business model. And I think that's what you've seen in other places. And that's probably what we're going to see here for the next 18 months. And I suspect that a lot of people aren't, won't really be too aware of this kind of stuff. And they'll just generally look at these numbers thinking, well, okay, I've just got a number that um, I'll just optimize that without really being prepared to interrogate what kind of assumptions have gone into this. Because a lot of the time, we're not really paid to do that kind of humanity, soft science, a kind of critical thinking stuff, we're paid to make the number go up or go make it go down. And like, this is probably the thing that I think is, that needs a lot more research right now, because the view in Europe uh, that you see from, especially in France, has a massive bias towards the embedded carbon on uh, w with electronics. Whereas if you look at, say, other parts of the world, there's a massive focus on just the energy so that we don't need to have any uncomfortable discussions about a new generation of smartphones each year or a new generation of hardware every, every year, for example. Are you confident that within two years or 18 months, we will have an okay enough standard to at least measure the carbon emission of a website and an apps including the embedded ones, or is it just too early for people to agree on something like that? So this is actually an interesting question in my view, because there are two kind of fields, two schools of thought here that I've seen. So one school of thought is very much like, let's create a standard to make sure we catch all the complexity first. And then once we've got that standard, we'll be able to deploy that in lots and lots of places. And because we've got a really well thought through standard, 
the questions that have come up to, uh, that will come up, we will already have a good answer, which makes it easier to get that kind of adoption across organizations. And you can kind of see that approach somewhat in what you're seeing from an organization called the Green Software Foundation, where there is this focus on making a standard called the Software Carbon Intensity Index, which really has a kind of quite strong focus like that. So let's figure it out and then start working there and then, and then figure out how to implement on that. Then by comparison, you see in the kind of world of, I guess, sustainable web, for example, where people have taken a existing model, which they know to be kind of imperfect, but they figured, well, let's start with this. And then as we keep using it, we'll find the the, the problems from use will raise or will, will keep being raised. And as long as we have some kind of mechanism for addressing those issues, then uh, we'll, we'll basically achieve adoption by having an imperfect thing that will improve over time, basically. So I think... Um, I think we already do have some numbers that you can use to give you some idea of where you need to be going. And the thing that it's probably worth being aware of is like um, is having an awareness of how much precision you actually need for in order for you to make a decision uh, or for you to kind of back a particular decision about choosing one more sustainable way of working versus another, right? And um, we often confuse these two things or we think that oh i need a lot more precision or a lot more accuracy than i thought i did but a lot of time you probably don't i suspect that we probably will we probably have something now that you can use that organizations are basing decisions on already and i think that you that will probably improve over time as the amount of research does come up and i think that if people are prepared to basically give credence to numbers then just the fact that people are kind of making uh, number uh, make it making business decisions based on numbers means they're going to pay more attention and they'll improve it over time. So I think that you do have two schools of thought, and I am slightly leaning towards this idea of kind of rough consensus and working code, and then improving that um, in that 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 kind of improvement rather than trying to get something closer to having being really specified and then trying to deploy it. The jury's out on this in my view. I'm not sure which approach will be more effective in the long run. But I do know that right now, if you are looking at this, you can start with something like uh, the sustainable web design model that's been implemented in a number of places. Or you can look at, say, the one byte model used by the Shift project and be aware that there are some drawbacks with that, or there are some things that there are some areas of contention where academics are currently duking it out. But the fact that you're using some metric and that you've in, you start to incorporate this idea of a metric, which is not just engagement, money, retention, this kind of stuff, is actually kind of useful in the first place. And I feel like you kind of need to start with some kind of metric and then realize that your organization will need to develop some organizational sophistication in, in making sense of what these metrics mean over time. So I think, yeah, I think we will have that. It's a case of how much precision and accuracy do you actually need in your organization for the decisions you're basically making, really. And I would say to start working, it's better to have average metrics available immediately than just metric that you will have to wait for a year and a half. So it's really a question of starting a momentum. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is the thing. There, there's going to be a limit, right? So depending on how much clout you have to say, well, we want to use CO2JS or 
this sustainable web design model or the one byte model as a criteria for our sprint planning, right? So like we're always going to track this and we're going to break the build if these numbers go above a certain size, right? Um, you could start with something like that, but there may be some other places will basically say, well, these numbers don't feel ready enough and I don't see enough large organizations behind it. So I'm going to wait for the organization which has Microsoft and GitHub or blah, 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 using this because it's easier for me to then make the argument internally and say, well, it's not just us using this, it's those big companies over there, you know, and they can't all be wrong as well, right? So you do have this kind of, this is a, this is a kind of deliberate decision about what kind of, how much political capital you might be looking to kind of expend to get some of these ideas adopted. It very much depends on how big or how big the project might be. It may be that if you're doing a small project, you can just use some of the existing tools out there right now and uh, provide the kind of caveats and warnings and saying, these are the numbers and this is where some of the things might be either underestimating or overestimating our actual numbers. So if we were going to do something like price carbon, then we should take this into account, for example. Yeah, that's why the debate is so important here, because beyond the carbon, all the stuff related to water consumption, resources exhaustion is completely overlooked, in my humble opinion. And this is a debate that we need to have. So what the Green Wave Foundation is doing at the moment to help this debate happen, and what is your view on it, Chris? The thing that may be worth being aware of is that we're just coming to the end of our first kind of round of a fellowship program where we basically had five different fellows from three different continents who were technologists in different roles like either IT directors or developers or bloggers or content or product managers, people like that. Mm -hmm. And we basically paid for some of their time to research this stuff and blog the things that they were discovering and surface the papers and the reports that were useful in kind of helping shed light on this situation. There's now a, like a, a group uh, on a piece of software called Zotero where we've been collecting all the papers and all the reports that we've been reading and discussing and then if you go to our website you'll see the blog posts from each of the fellows talking about the things that they've been engaging to basically cover this and i think um there's a few people who um i'd probably draw attention to specifically melissa shung um in new york she's been writing about all these kind of non-carbon aspects of this so she's been talking a lot about a lot about some of the environmental justice aspects that use that we've just touched on here because there are impacts other than just carbon and if you think about the fact that, say, we're going to be making electronics from things like, say, hydrocarbons and plastics and stuff like that, then we should probably be taking into account the environmental costs associated with extracting that kind of stuff. So she's done research into where this extraction takes place and how those costs are shifted onto people, for example. And, uh, dude, there's like wild examples of, say, cities that you we've heard of, like LA, being full of oil extraction, like oil wells and things, but have been disguised to look like, say, synagogues and stuff like that. And uh, there are massive kind of health impacts for people who are living around there because these places, these wells, are basically being put right next to someone's house or literally on the same ground as a, as a, as a primary school, for example. So we've got some research there. And there's also some work by Fika Janssen, um, who's in the Netherlands. She's one of the other fellows. She's been talking about this idea of data centers as kind of sites of struggle where there are the, the kind of concentrated use of resources in a very, in a particular place has all these other impacts associated. So things like say water use, for example, and she points to how in the Netherlands, 
you see a lot of local pushback from company from from local communities who have been unhappy about say wind turbines being sited next to them but also about water being withdrawn at such rates that it has an impact on say the cost of water for them or their own supply and you see the same thing happening elsewhere in the world like say Arizona and in 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 North America where again you see basically large well organized organizations that are say deploying data centers essentially getting kind of priority for water usage compared to people being able to use this for drinking and their own usage. So there's all these kind of resource questions related to this. There's also some work from Hannah Smith, who's also been looking at some of the implica- some of the other knock-on effects when you might disrupt the economy that has been built up around the fact that we've been shipping electric waste, so say parts of Africa, for example, and that people become dependent on that. So even if you stop doing that, then you have this question of, well, what happens to the people who are building a business or relying on that for essentially creating a livelihood, even if it's really, really unhealthy for them to be uh, in unsafe conditions, melting down various kinds of uh, waste to kind of reclaim things like lead or various other chemicals that they can then sell on the market, for example. So we've been we've been allowing people or giving them a bit of time and space to explore this stuff. But to be honest, we don't have really concrete suggestions at the moment. We're hoping to kind of continue researching for this because when we look around, there are some groups that are doing this, that are kind of coming up with some concrete recommendations, but they're not in the tech sector. There are groups that might be saying things like, well, if you're going to be buying this, you should be prepared to speak to your supplier about, do they have a community benefit program or do they have like a zero tolerance um, clause and contracts? So there is no fear of reprisals for people who are actually pushing against this stuff in certain parts of the world. So there's a bunch of this, but it is something, like we said, is in the kind of fog of enactment phase. We don't really know which kinds of regulations or conventions or things like contracts that you might uh, you would use to really have the most impact right now to account for this. But we do know that it's really important and does need to be addressed. Absolutely. I really love the title fog of enactment. I believe this is Gauthier Roussil who wrote the paper for the Green Web Foundation. Yeah, I've, um, I've really, really enjoyed uh, Gauthier's work and the thing that I'm aware of as as a like primary English speaker and the English speaking world being basically a little bit behind France in many ways on this stuff. We commissioned Gautier to work with us because we really liked some of the work that he'd been doing, but we also did it because we wanted to recognize that there was all this work happening, not in English, that more people should see. And we figured by publishing that we could at least shine an idea uh, or shine the light on some of the other ways of talking about this that weren't so focused on energy even though like a lot of what we do as an organization is focused around energy we figured well we should be shining a light on all the stuff that's happening that isn't necessarily happening in english that could help move on this kind of discussion so we hope that's the first of the reports and we're planning to have some other ones around this idea of fossil free internet and embedding climate justice into into work but yeah, Gautier was absolutely fantastic to work with. And uh, if you're looking for a researcher, uh, he's a really good person to follow the work of. And uh, yeah, he's uh, if, if he's available and he's not already working with us, then I would t- I would absolutely recommend working with him. He was fantastic to work with. Yeah, his paper are absolutely um, flawless, I would say, with this 360 vision, not focusing only on carbon emission, but like this full life cycle analysis. And I would like to ask you two last questions because we... Uh, Running out of time, I would love to keep the discussion on for two more hours, but that's not the idea of uh, this podcast. So recently, I spotted a LinkedIn post 
where Adam Turner was puzzled by the amount of jobs being advertised in ICT sustainability versus manpower shortage in this area. And this is exactly what you've been discussing for the last half an hour. And I think it really made a point. We need a lot of people to get knowledge, even to specialize in this field. But it's still very hard. I mean, you don't have like a diploma, a digital sustainability diploma or not that many courses. So what advices would you would you give to someone willing to specialize in digital sustainability? What training should be followed? Books should be read? Which community should be joined? What are your top picks on this topic? Uh, yeah, this is um, this isn't actually that different from when people ask, like, say, five or 10 years ago, in 2011, said, hi, we're looking for Rails developers, Ruby and Rails developers with 15 years experience. That's so true. It's not a new thing for us as an industry to be trying to hire things and uh, without really that much of an understanding of where the skill shortages actually is. I think that when maybe 10 years ago, there were people trying to get some of this stuff put together saying, hi, this is going to be a topic. So the British Computer Society, they had some work like this before and they, they even had some training courses, I think. And uh, likewise, other organizations did do this. But what they basically said was, we tried doing this, but we didn't see enough interest uh, from our member organization. So we decided to discontinue these and stop running them. So you basically have this scenario where you've got this crunch in terms of skills again. And I think that there is now a kind of uptick in interest in this. So I think the British Computer Society are doing something, are now designing a new course specifically for this. Uh, I know that other bodies uh, in other parts of the world are also trying to put this together. I do some work with the Green Software Foundation, and there is a whole discussion around certification of training for this. And other organizations like the SDIA, the Sustainable Digital Infrastructure Alliance, they are also doing work with other training and certification organizations to do this. So there is this kind of scramble right now to come up with syllabuses and naming of competencies so people can use this stuff. So we do have this kind of massive crunch right now. And I don't think there are enough digital sustainability experts right now to meet demand, which means I guess it's good news if you want to be learning this because it means your skills will be in demand and people will have to pay probably pretty good rates for this. Like for context, um, I saw Intel have hired a, in the last six months, Intel set up an entirely new division for this, for basically focusing in this particular field of like open source and sustainability. And uh they were offering very, very healthy salaries for this kind of stuff. Uh, so there is a kind of uptick in this. But if you haven't got that, if you haven't developed those skills right now, I think there are groups like, say, Teradu who are, who are developing this or the organizations I've mentioned. But um, your question was about are there books and other things that I, you would point to? I'd probably say there's like a small number of books which I think are useful, but there's probably a wider section of material which is not necessarily in tech but is actually very, very helpful for addressing some of the problems we've said that we don't have answers for in the world of technology right now. So the books that you're probably going to look for, if you just Googled like sustainability in web, you'd find a book designed for sustainability from Tim Frick. You'd find sustainable web design from Tom Holgrain. These are two quite similar books uh, that are both actually quite strong books. Tim Frick's one is a bit older. Uh, Tom, Tom, uh, Tom Greenwood from Holgrain Digital, not Tom Holgrain. God. <laughs> So Tom Greenwood's book came out last year, and um, that's probably the newest book that I'm aware of in this field. But there's also ones 
from I think Jerry McGovern, uh, Worldwide Waste, where he talks about some of this from a content design point of view, for example. But I would really recommend looking a little bit wider than that. So there is a really fantastic book by John Kumi called Numbers to Knowledge, where he talks about and that's basically about how to apply critical thinking when you're thinking about data and numbers, particularly for informing very, very large policy decisions or informing decisions where people have spent a bunch of money in a company. And he opens the chapter with his book about how we had this entire discussion in the early 2000s, basically lots and lots of in, uh, coal com uh, companies that made lots of money by mining and selling coal said the internet needs internet has massive energy usage requirements so therefore we need to mine loads of coal because the internet runs on coal mm. and uh, those assumptions caused lots and lots of people to make very 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 wasteful decisions in the early 2000s and if you don't know how to avoid these kind of mistakes that we've done historically you're going to struggle and uh, this kind of brings us to other people who've been writing about this for a while I really like um, the content or the work from Alice Bell. She's not a tech sustainability specialist. She talks about the history of climate change, but she's got a book called Our Biggest Experiment where, where she talks all about these numbers and uh, all about how we kind of make decisions on this. And I found another book which I find really helpful. Again, isn't actually a tech-focused book. Um, Professor Kimberly Nicholas, she has a book called Under the Sky We Make. I continually refer to her models for talking about some of the kind of emotional and intellectual issues around climate change, not just how do I make the CO2 number go up or down in my sprint cycle, for example. And then there is um, the stuff I'd really suggest reading uh, from Amy Westervelt. All of her podcasts are really, really good talking about, I guess, the political political economy that underpins some of the decisions that we might be working with and how a lot of the kind of numbers we end up being exposed to or being shown, how they're created and what defaults are put into there and whose interests there have been designed from the very get-go so that we focus on, let's focus on the inefficiency of the compute of cloud without thinking about the embodied energy in building all these data centers, for example, or things like that. It's very interesting because basically what you say two to three books or podcasts to understand the topic of digital sustainability, then it's a lot of self-training. Stay aware of what is going on regarding standards and frameworks, and you name quite a lot of them. And of course, we will put all these resources uh, on the podcast. But your main advice is once you've read Tom's book, a masterpiece, I must admit, I really enjoyed reading it. It's super easy. Jerry's book, a big punch in the face. It's not that enjoyable, but it's it's very easy to read. And Tim, I must admit, it's on my to-do, but I didn't read it. But once you've read this few books, if you're lucky enough to be a, a, a French speaker, you've got a bunch of other books that are unfortunately not translated yet. But when it's, when it's done, do not stop here. Broader your vision, read books on the wider topic of uh, climate change, you didn't mention that much the, the mining um, operations and how polluting they are, etc. But of course, there are a lot of great resources as well. I hope I will be able to invite one of the French specialists on, on this one pretty soon. And and that's, that's, that's your main advice. Huh? Once you've done your homework with must-read book when it comes to digital sustainability, expand with books that will provide you a wider perspective. Yeah, I, I'd say so. There's a few newsletters that I find helpful. Um, there's one newsletter called Green Rocks, which is all about the environmental aspects of mining. There's a woman called Ingrid Burrington, who's also been writing quite detailed stuff about the kind of mining and hardware aspects of this. Those, I think, I think Ingrid is based in New York. Um, I've totally blanked on the name of the 
gentleman who runs the Green Rocks newsletter, but there's a real focus in Indonesia and um, Southeast Asia, I think. So that's worth looking at as well. And um, I'd probably say that, yeah, that's uh, that, I, I don't know any really, really new books specifically on the kind of mining aspects of this right now. You generally need to kind of trawl through reports right now from groups like, say, German Watch or Electronics Watch or uh, the War on Want, for example, who, who are touching on this. But these tend to not be... They're not aimed necessarily at a techno- technology audience or coming from the point of a technology trying to engage with this issue. I suspect that, like you mentioned, there are there's probably going to be more stuff in the kind of francophone world that you're going to find right now, simply because, yeah, it's a blind spot that we've had for the last like 20 years where people have paid attention. They have not received the attention that they really deserve, I would say. Talking about people, do you believe that there are influencers that need to be followed in our field, like people that you really enjoy talking to or listening to? Yeah. So I mentioned uh, people like, say, Alice Bell, Kimberly, Nicholas. I found Maddie Stone's work really, really, really helpful. She's basically a journalist who writes about this particular beat of tech and climate. I don't think anyone writes as clearly as she does, so frequently as she does as well. Her stuff is absolutely really, really, really top notch. The other person whose stuff I've really liked, uh, there's a woman called Anne Curry. She's doing some work with the Green Software Foundation, and I worked with her when we were doing some kind of trademark work together. But she, for the last like few years, she's been contributing to this white paper every year about kind of tech ethics specifically around climate. The white paper has some really good recommendations and good summaries of what you can do as a CTO or a CPO for this. So her stuff is really, really quite, is, is really, really good. And she's, she also is, speaks on quite a few podcasts about, okay, these are the ways you might try to sell this. And on the, there's a podcast called Environment Variables, where she wrote specifically about selling the idea of digital sustainability internally and what things work and what things do not work. I've heard, I found her stuff good. And then finally, um, there's a woman called Louise Crow, who's the CEO of My Society now. Mm. She has been one of the technical leaders on their climate program. And I found her stuff really, really systemically aware and really well thought through. Her background is basically democracy tech. The argument that they make is basically the climate crisis is a crisis of democracy because we are essentially giving too much power to a very, very small group who do well out of keeping things as they are whilst ignoring all the needs from a much wider section of people. And I think that framing is really, really helpful uh, when trying to engage in this subject in a much more kind of systemic aware, a systemically aware way that you might not be able to if you're just focusing only internally inside your company who basically are incentivized in many ways to act like essentially an undying sociopath because that's what we incentivize companies <laughs> to act like. So, yeah. So true. Or not paying attention to the environment. Well, yeah, exactly. Exactly. If you incentivize companies not to care about the environment or, and you basically subsidize mining of virgin materials and everything like that, then of course they're going to act the way they act. And like, there is only so much you're going to be able to do by getting all your people inside an organization to spend a lot of political capital at that point, which is in, in many ways is going against a lot of the kind of incentives that are already in place for companies. You're going to have... Uh, there's a really strong argument for talking about changing of regulation. So you end up with incentives that make it easier to make the case to do the right thing. Because right now, yeah, we, the, if you look at how the lot of the regulations are structured, they do tend to incentivize some behavior, which we generally would argue is extremely unsustainable and probably putting on, on the, putting us on this kind of course where we're basically accelerating into this iceberg. And I feel like, yeah, that needs to be addressed. We can't just only talk about 
like the internal facing things. You really do need a kind of systemic view on this, but that's okay. Uh, we're not, there are other people working on that systemic view as well. And I think it's really useful to engage with those people and realize there's a world outside of tech that we can benefit from if we want to achieve any of the change that I guess we're driven into, uh, we, 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 want, we want to see. I believe there is a word outside of tech that we could benefit from, could be our closing word. Actually, that might be our closing <laughs> word <laughs> because that is absolutely true and that embedded pretty well the discussion we had for this second part of this episode. So um, thanks a lot, Chris, for being with us today. Thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed this, Gail. Thank you. And uh, thank you again for putting on this podcast. It's really nice to have things like this that you can point people to who are trying to engage with this subject for the first time and find something actionable to like incorporate into their work. So yeah, thank you. You're more than welcome. And that's it. Thank you all for listening to Green IO. If you have liked this episode, please share it on social media or with any friends or colleagues who would enjoy it or learn from it. Green IO being a non-profit podcast, our dear listeners are our true communication power. And you are our scout as well, so feel free to share with me your ID for new guests who want to make our digital world greener, one bite at a time. <laughs>